It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And also anywhere uh, across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and and uh, download that app and then type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere across the country. I'd like to welcome our next guest to the show. MP Gary Vidal, and he is the uh, the MP for uh, Desnethe, Mississippi, Churchill River in Saskatchewan, and he's also a member of the Special Committee on COVID-19 and a member of the Standing Committee on Indigenous and Northern Affairs. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, of course, uh, it's it's a, a bit of a of a situation that is developing, I guess, in in your area. You know, as, as things rolled out, as we saw this COVID nineteen break across the around the world, uh, starting, of course, uh, as we knew, as as far as we can we can isolate this in the uh, in, in China, and it spread out. It's kind of had this delay effect as it spread from country to country. Uh, we've had the advantage of some in some. Uh, cases here in Canada as it was delayed getting here we could see what to do what not to do in terms of how to react and and how to uh, uh, sort of mitigate things however i understand that uh, in in your area uh, there was always concern about this getting into First Nations, uh, in mostly because of crowded conditions and and situations where they don't have the proper uh, health care and people s- staffed in those communities uh, to be able to to help fight this as we can in many of the municipal areas. Now, I understand uh, as, as things rolled out a little bit uh, in your area, you know, First Nation people uh, leave their communities to go to work. Some of those people were working, I think, in the oil sands areas, and uh, some of them came back asyst- uh, asystematic and uh, then started to bring that back into, a, into their community as well as some others as they were traveling back home. Yeah, that's our understanding as kind of what started this outbreak in, in northern Saskatchewan was you know, uh, somebody brought it back from from northern Alberta. There's there's a winter road across to that area that um, people go back and forth to to work on, and that there was one one incident where somebody you know unfortunately brought that virus back across the border into northwest Saskatchewan, and then as you identified based on on some of the conditions and some of the concerns about uh, those areas. Um, once it starts to spread there, it's just very difficult to kind of hold the line on it. And that was always our concern um, of it getting into communi- communities of, of kind of this environment. You know, um, there's a benefit to being remote in, in mm-hmm. that maybe it took longer to get there and there was, you know, some less chance of it getting there. But once it got there, there's always the challenge of how fast it might spread. And that's proven to be ever so true in that um, region of northwest Saskatchewan. Yeah, and um, and can you can you give us a little more of an idea of the kind of conditions that they are living with in those? Because some of the some of the stuff I've been reading, there are up to sometimes fifteen people living in a household. You know that's true. There are I think there are some situations like that. I'm, I'm not sure that's true all the time, but there is there is some overcrowded housing. Um, indigenous people, you know, are, are social by nature. So there's a mm. lot of social interaction. They, a lot of family stuff, a lot of extended family stuff where 
there's a lot of interaction that, that happens um, just naturally. And so, you know, when, when the request is made to ask people that are used to living like that to respect kind of the public health orders and, and, and this idea of social distancing and, and staying apart, that, you know, that creates some challenge in communities like, like that, you know, be, because of the, you know, some of the conditions, but also just because some of their natural social behavior patterns um, creates a challenge for those communities once they, they have something like this to deal with. When did you first become aware of the situation that was unfolding there? It was about the middle of April, I think, when the first case was actually identified there. Um, and unfortunately, the, the, the beginning of this was, um, it kind of came back from, or the virus came back, you know, what we understand is the virus came back from Alberta, and it ended up in a, in a, a care home there. That was the big concern that mm. it was, you know, in, in the care home in that community. And so they, you know, they've acted very quickly to try to um, respond to that. Um, but again, because of some of the, the conditions we spoke of, uh, once it kind of got into the community and started to spread, it got into some of the surrounding First Nations communities. There's a lot of Métis and First Nations and um, whatever communities around that area. And, and it's fairly mobile as well. People move through the, through the different communities. So we've now seen that spread to a number of other communities in, in the area. And you know, there was a case at a, it was, it's a gas bar and a, a gas bar and a grocery store, kind of gas bar grocery convenience store. That's a real central hub of Northwest Saskatchewan. And, you know, once it got into a, a place like that, there's just so many people that pass through that area that, that obviously created, created some concern. And now that concern has been realized with the number of cases we have. And and what's the latest information that you have in terms of cases, uh, both active that might be and also might be resolved, and and deaths that might have uh, happened because of this? You know, so far there's been been two deaths, unfortunately. I think both in kind of the care home or in in, in elders in in the community, um, which is very sad. And obviously, we continue to express our condolences to those people. Um, the last few days, actually, the numbers have been very small. So we're we're hoping that the trend is going the the right direction. The numbers have been have been really low in the last three days. Um, some information that came out at the end of last week was that the majority of the cases in this area were in people under 19. So it's it's a lot of the youth and um, you know a lot of the younger people that that maybe have had a challenge with the social distancing and and some of those kind of things. So um, maybe there's a bit of a blessing in that, and that that you know the youth are probably less vulnerable to the consequences of the disease but they're also because they're very social very connected with their elders one of the concerns is obviously that that gets passed into the the you know passed to the people that are more vulnerable gets passed to the elders because of the social nature of of, of the culture um that it's obviously still a grave concern but if there is a blessing most of the cases are in the young people that will probably be able to stave this off better than maybe some of the more more vulnerable people mm. Um, as you said earlier, there is a, a bit of a of a blessing in terms of being isolated, and that it, it, you know, t- in, in terms of if there was no travel, uh, th- it's less likely that the that the the virus could have gotten into the community. However, because of uh, either people working or traveling, um, when it did get there, there was uh, you know a concern that that uh, and it was voiced in other areas, and and has always been that concern that once it gets into First Nations, that because of many of the conditions that we talked about, it could could skyrocket very quickly. 
Um, but it sounds good from what you were just saying that the numbers have been kind of low in the last few days. So what has been implemented then to, to help uh, mitigate these conditions? You know, I, I think the community leaders both, like there's municipal leadership, there's First Nations leadership, and there's a bunch of Métis leadership um, that have been working together in this region to limit travel, to try to limit the people moving around. Um, obviously, the province has been very involved. They've, they've, uh, um, they've, been com- they've become involved with the, with the limit of travel. They've, they've instituted a northern um, lockdown, so to speak, to, to limit the people coming and going to the area. Um, they're manning the, the blockades or the, the, the mm. stations 24-7. Um, and just trying to limit the, the, the movement of people. The community leaders have been, have been um, so concerned. They've been trying to express their concern to their people about responding and respecting the um, advice of the public health officials to maintain some distancing, to, to realize that you have to do some isolating, that you, you can't just live the same way you were living before. Um, in order to beat this thing and kind of, you know, there's got to be some personal accountability to this as well, where we take some, we take some personal action responsibility for our health and for the protection of our, our friends and our family and our elders and the vulnerable, vulnerable people that we interact with. There, there, there has to be some personal accountability and these, these community leaders have been calling on their people to do that. And it's been, I know it's been an area of frustration for them and they just keep, pleading with the people to respect these things and um, you know hopefully that's hopefully that's starting to get through we're starting to see um, you know that that respect being um, implemented and being being advanced by people so that we can hopefully slow this down and and, and get past this um, I mean and one of the things that happened on the weekend is they they um, they also implemented a you know the, the community leaders been calling for a closure of some of the liquor stores and stuff like that to because the 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 access to liquor and, and to some of those stuff actually um, leads to more social kind of engagement and whatnot and so they're they're trying to take steps to limit that social engagement by by limiting access to alcohol and drugs and some of those kind of things at the same time realizing that that is a bit of a is a bit of a challenge as well if you're dealing with people with addictions and you're dealing with some of those challenges so they've kind of taken some steps to um, make sure that they're ready for those challenges when when they come you know the province has taken up some isolation tents and um, the federal government has provided all kinds of uh, protective equipment and support in other ways so I think it's been a pretty collaborative effort in the whole region of the of the people on the ground at the leadership level of the province and of the federal government to try to respond to the situation as best as everybody can. Where are people going to get tested uh, in the north? Has has have things been taken to the north so they can get these tests done, or do they have to travel elsewhere to get that? Uh, no, they're actually doing the testing right there. In fact, they were going door to door at one point at the end of last week to test in the in the community of Lalosh. They were literally going door to door to test people there. Uh, when you say they, who who is they? Um, I would believe I believe it would be the Saskatchewan Health Authority. Mm. Okay. Just want to jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, 
Type in 95.7 ELMNT-FM or 106.5 ELMNT-FM and listen on your device of choice, 24-hour day, seven days a week. And we are speaking with uh, Gary Vidal. He is our guest right now. He's an MP from the Sente Missinippi, Churchill River, Saskatchewan area. And I'm always wanting to say uh, either Mississippi or Mississauga when I see that name because I'm, I'm used to <laughs> uh, dealing with those uh, names a little more than Mississippi. But there you go. <laughs> and, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And we, we do appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, it's my pleasure being with you. Now, um, you said that the, the numbers are sort of leveling off. You talked about some of the ways they're starting to to mitigate this now. Um, things are starting to, uh, as you know, I was uh, sort of alluding to this sort of earlier in different parts of the country. At this point, they're starting to open things up, uh, you know, and look to be able to do more social interaction, uh, at least uh, in in some cases. Uh, taking into, of course, account that we still should be social distancing, etc. Um, what do you see on the horizon that might be encouraging? And how many, uh, before you answer that, how many people might we be talking about in this, in this area? I believe that the numbers are about 174, I think, is the last number I saw in, in that area mm. of active cases, yeah. Okay, but but in terms of population, how, what's the population in this region? It could be as much as 15,000 if you take the whole kind of region up there, including all the First Nations and the Métis communities and the, and the, the northern villages. And how far north are we talking um, from any, you know, urban area? Well, from Meadow Lake to Laloche would be about 400 kilometers, so... Mm. If you look on a map, Meadow Lake is literally um, about halfway up the province of Saskatchewan. So about, uh, well, literally, we're, we're north and south. Meadow Lake is just about halfway up. If you look at it kind of across the, across the provinces, Meadow Lake is about the same north-south range as the city of Edmonton. Um, and so then Laloche is about uh, four hours, 400 kilometers north of Meadow Lake. Hmm. Okay. Um now, you know, as I was looking, of course, uh, a couple of stories on the, on these issues. Uh, Rick La Liberté, he, uh, you know, was talking about how he, he had a concern that, that he thought the numbers were going to go straight up in his community. Um, we've talked about how once it gets into different communities uh, in, the, in the north, in, uh, in First Nation, Métis communities that are isolated, that there's a concern that the numbers could increase quite rapidly in some cases, as you pointed out earlier, because of uh, uh, crowded conditions with up to sometimes 15 people in a household. Once that does get into a household, of course, with that many people, uh, that, that's a it's pretty hard not to have it spread throughout the household with that many people in it. No, I mean, like, like I, like we talked about the benefit of being kind of Northern and remote in the, you know, maybe limiting the access. But like you said, the fact that once it's there, that Northern remote, instead of being mm -hmm. a blessing, maybe becomes a little bit of a curse for a number mm -hmm. of reasons. One, um, you don't have access to some of the same healthcare facilities. You don't have access to some of the same services, but you know, these are resilient people. They've dealt with a lot of things, um, in their lifetimes, and uh, uh, I'm I'm convinced with the community leadership and the support of their of their families and their friends that that um, this is this is just another one of the things that that these communities will will overcome. They will rally around. They will support one another, 
and uh, they they will overcome this just like they have so many other things in the past. And I think you know there's some lessons to be learned from this, just like there was from H1N1 or from some of the past pandemics. Um, there was some some really good advanced planning done in 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 communities that had pandemic plans that were able to um, initiate those plans once this started to develop. Um, is there still some work to do in other communities or even in those communities where they say, you know, we could do this better? There's obviously some things that can be learned. Um, I think one of the really cool things that's happened in all of this, and, 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 and you have to take that kind of in context, but what we've seen is groups of people that, that have not had a history of working together, coming together to um, collaborate and, and work together to overcome the pandemic in Northwest Saskatchewan. So we have the First Nations communities and the Métis people and the municipal leaders, the provincial government, the federal government, all actually coming together and working together to um, overcome this, this challenge, this pandemic. And I think there's going to be some lessons that we can learn from that as we look forward and how we find solutions to other challenges in regions like this and what we can accomplish when we actually work together rather than fighting within our own silos and within our own kind of turf wars. There's going to be some things we can learn about working together that will help us address other challenges in the future. It's nice to hear you say that because as we know, uh, even even up to uh, a year ago, uh, you know, we, we've always heard about uh, concerns in First Nation communities right across the country and not necessarily remote uh, or northern, uh, freshwater being a very serious concern that has been for years and years. Um, but to hear you say that, you know, perhaps we'll look at these things a little differently and uh, not in our silos, um, you know, I think that, that one of the things, if anything, that, that COVID-19 has taught us as, a, as a, a race of people right around the globe is that uh, we are all connected, uh, regardless of where we are or who we are. Um, this this is something that shows us that, uh, for better or worse, we are connected and we need to be paying attention to, to that. And, and it's for the benefit of all if we start to look at these things a little differently. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, David. I mean, um, I, I'm new to this. I mean, I was just elected in October, so you know, one of the one of the things that I came into this whole um, new job with was was an idea of, of just wanting to build authentic relationships with people. And I mean, um, I served. I was the mayor of Meadow Lake for a number of years prior, and had very close relationships with some of the First Nations leadership um, of the surrounding communities. We we literally have communities that are directly connected. All we have separating the city of Meadow Lake and the Flying Dust First Nation is a is a highway, basically. We, we went to school together. We played sports together. I coached all their kids and was involved in their lives. Um, we are very connected. And the lessons I learned in my journey as a hockey coach and a small city mayor is something that I tried to bring to my role as a member of parliament, serving a, the, the third largest riding in Canada with a 70% Indigenous population. And um, just very, very remote and diverse communities, both culturally and geographically. And then when I got thrown the Indigenous Services shadow minister role, um, my responsibility, rather than just building relationships in northern Saskatchewan, became one where I'm looking to build relationships in 634 First Nations across the country, as well as kind of Métis and Inuit communities um, the job got a, a lot larger, but at the end of the day, it's still the same job. It's about building relationships with people that matter 
so that we can work together to overcome the challenges. At the end of the day, um, if we just continue to to battle within our own silos, within our own kind of little areas, we're, we're just going to keep doing the same things over and over again. And I think it's just really important that we that we find ways to work together um, to overcome the challenges that we face in Indigenous communities and in non-Indigenous communities. We, we need to find ways that we that we, we actually look for solutions rather than just territorial or kind of turf kind of war things that, that maybe are so prevalent in our, in our history as, as Canadians in general, maybe I would say. You know, now you've, you've sort of uh, mentioned that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned turf wars, and when you said that, I thought about how um, there still seems to be this misunderstanding, I think, uh, in, in some uh, parts of the Canadian population, non-Indigenous population, of, of a misunderstanding of what the treaties represent, what the treaties mean, and uh, and how and why they were set up. Uh, you know, sometimes we still hear uh, Canadians talking about uh, the burden that First Nation people put on to the tax system, or they get things for free, or, you know, what are they complaining about, you know, and, and you know, why do they, uh, you know, just get on, on with things? And, and that fiduciary one responsibility, but also what the treaties have been and why they've been set up. You know, I, I mean, part of that was um, that Canada got the natural uh, access to the natural resources and it created a huge amount of wealth for the country and, and people. Um, indigenous people were supposed to get some benefit of that. And, um, and I'm, I'm hoping, um, and I'm, won- I'm wondering also, I guess, what, what your sense of that is as well. How much education still needs to be done in order to, to bring uh, Canadians up to the sense that there is an understanding of, of what that relationship is with Canada and First Nations? You know what, I, 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 I'm going to go back to a little bit what I just said a few minutes ago. I, I think it's just really <laughs> important that, that as Canadians, we just we have legitimate and authentic relationships with one another so that we can have those difficult conversations when we need to. Um, we obviously have many differences in our society on a number of different things. And I guess my argument would be is, is we can sometimes uh, uh, disagree on things, whatever they may be, but, but what we have to do is we have to develop a level of respect for one another so that when when we do disagree, we can do it with respect, we can do it and still have those authentic relationships and what I call, and I, you can't see me on radio, but I'm quoting adult conversations about things so that we really, really, we, we, we really look for true and meaningful solutions that um, can benefit everybody. And I, I believe that win-win is there in a lot of these things. I mean, you talked about the the resource sector. There's many, many First Nations leaders I've talked to that want to participate in that sector because they understand that that sector is an opportunity for them to bring wealth and prosperity into their communities so that they can invest in in the things that they need in those communities, whether it be social things, whether it be housing things, whether it be recreation, whether it be healthcare or education. Many of these leaders see the need to to participate in the economy, to participate in prosperity, to bring that wealth and prosperity to their community so that they have the opportunity to succeed as well. Um, I mean, I could use an example of my own community. There's a a tribal council and a a, a group of people in my own community that have been the shining example of that. And, And they're always my beacon on this because they've 
they've proven to me in history how important that is and how successful that is when they, when it's done right. Hmm. Um, Gary, just to go back to the COVID-19 situation for a moment, we're, we're almost out of time, um, but uh, I just want to... to uh, I'm just wondering if you know more. You said some some of the personal protective equipment had been gotten into the communities. Uh, do you know if, if additional health personnel uh, have been also brought in for for helping the communities, not only with testing but but other uh, measures for this? Yes, that's that's been that's been a function of both the province and the federal government have both been involved in in both kind of the supplies and PPE and that kind of stuff, but also in. Um, what I, I've heard the federal people talk about surge personnel, like this idea of bringing in extra help. And I know the province has sent a number of health officials to this region as well. So th- I think that's been true on a number of fronts. All right. Uh, Gary, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the show. I really want to thank you for calling in. Uh, and I guess you're, you're in uh, Saskatchewan. I'm, I'm assuming that's where you're calling in from. I am, yes. I'm at my, in my hometown of Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. All right. Uh, Gary, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Moment of Truth. My pleasure joining you today, David. All right. Take care. You as well. All right. Bye-bye. That was MP Gary Vidal. He is the MP for Desnethe, Nisinippi, and Churchill River in Saskatchewan. He's a member of the Special Committee on COVID-19 and a member of the Standing Committee on Indigenous and Northern Affairs. It's been a pleasure having him on the show today, and it's been our pleasure to bring this show to you. Don't go away, though. We will be back here on Moment of Truth with more right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and of course, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'd like to welcome our guests to the show today. It's a pleasure to have them both on. And just before we got our uh, our session started today, they were catching up with each other online through our Zoom meeting. So it's great to have them both with us. We have uh, Tracy Smith and we have Tamara Pademski with us. And uh, they are both here because of um, something they've been involved with. And we're going to get into this. It's pretty cool. And like I say, they were just talking about it as well. Um, outside Looking In, uh, which is an accredited high school program that uses dance as a tool to engage students in activities to develop life skills, promote mental and physical health, and achieve academic success. And a professional choreographer visits, participating communities uh, monthly to provide Indigenous youth with the opportunity to engage in the intensive long-term education program through dance. And uh, as an added incentive, students who meet the criteria have the opportunity to participate at the annual gala dance celebration in Toronto. But, of course, this year that was cancelled because of COVID-19. Now, we're going to talk a bit about that. And uh, Tamara was actually the, uh, the host MC of that event. But let me tell you a little bit about each of them before we get any further. Tamara Pademski is Anishinaabe. She's a multidisciplinary arts-born and raised in, Ontario, in Toronto. And for 25 years, her work has spanned across the mediums with such credits as Dance Me Outside, The Res, Ready or Not, North of 60, Rabbit Fall, Heartland, Cracked, and numerous theatre productions. In 2011, Tamara was nominated for a Jesse Theatre Award for her performance in Marie Clement's play, The Edward Cur- uh, Curtis Project. 
And uh, it goes on and on for Tamara. She is a writer and story producer with uh, the TV documentary series Future History, which celebrates the reclamation and revitalization of Indigenous knowledge. Tamara, welcome to the show. Sunny, bonjour, hello, thanks for having me. And now let's talk a little bit about Tracy. Uh, Tracy Smith was appointed the NAC's Board of Trustees on September 18th, 2017 for a four-year term, and she is the founder and CEO of Outside Looking In, which is, as we mentioned, it's a non-profit organization and was created by the Ministry of Education Accredited Dance Program to Encourage Self-Esteem and Empowerment for Indigenous Youth. The goal is to reduce high school dropout rate of Indigenous youth in Ontario. Now, if you go to the uh, Outside Looking In website, you can see a lot of uh, the videos on the Facebook page as well. You see lots of stuff uh, that has to do with, with students that have entered this program. And you can actually see and hear these kids talking about the benefits that they have received uh, in going to this uh, and, and attending this program. And it's, you know, it's really wonderful to see uh, all these kids in their communities dancing. You see gyms full of kids. And, and I have to tell you, um, just before we got the, the uh, th- this interview started, uh, I was telling Tracy that uh, you know I used to work with APTN. I started with APTN as a videographer and and as a correspondent in Ottawa, and I used to go to communities uh, with a camera, uh, being a, a a news reporter. And you know it's really interesting because when I would show up, and I'm an Indigenous person showing up to the community, but still kids, people would would shy away at that time from the camera. So it's really cool now to see if a, a camera going into these communities and these kids getting engaged and doing stuff and participating and uh, sort of finding themselves and coming out of that shell a bit. So uh, welcome uh, to both of you and, and congratulations, uh, Tracy, with this uh, Outside Looking In program. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Uh, so listen, can you tell us a little bit more about Outside Looking In? When did it first get started? Well, I'd say it started, you know, in my mind, it was an idea probably in 2005 when I was teaching, I was teaching quite a bit in different reserves because I came back from the, from the U.S. from dancing there and I was recovering from knee surgery. So after hmm. my knee surgery, I was getting asked to teach. So I would, it was a good way to like keep my body going. And, um, and I would go up for, to the various communities for a week or so and I'd work with the kids all week and then we'd put on a show at the end of the week. So that's kind of where the idea came was because I would work with these kids all week and then we'd put on the show. And, you know, the one community that I went to is Lac LaCroix and they, mm. you know, we did it for a week. We invited people to come out, you know, we sold tickets, we made cupcakes and, you know, I, in a week you can't really put on a big routine and I think with the kids mm. dance for maybe 30 seconds um but they had they had to perform it multiple times just because that was the extent of our show so it wasn't mm. a very long show but it was more powerful enough that you know I I had some parents who were in tears and grandparents <laughs> were in tears because sometimes in our communities there's not a lot of opportunities for kids to show off their talents right and for parents to applaud their kids when they're proud of them. Mm. There's not enough of those opportunities. So when I saw that, I thought, well, geez, like this is so powerful. Um, why don't I do it times a hundred? And, but then at the same time, what was getting to me was the fact that um, our education rates are so low 
And mm. that pro the, that week long program really brought the kids out to the school a lot. Yeah, it was it was kind of like what, what Tracy was saying. You can have the talent, but if you don't have a space to showcase that, and also if you don't have um, a, an environment or a culture around supporting it and be and, and that talent being witnessed, um, there's no point, you know, for for a kid to just um, you know I, I find how good it feels to dance and do it by themselves. It is something that needs to be witnessed. I believe so much in that um, acknowledgement of uh, of the expression, and and that's what this program does. And I feel like that's what the the, the performing arts school did for me. Mm. Um, and it, it's not necessarily a validation because they don't they don't they don't blow you know blow your head up with these ideas like you're going to be a superstar. Mm. You it it's it's just it's a place where it's okay to express yourself. It's permission to to do this thing that that is is quite scary to do and it's within a a, a support um system of your peers um to all kind of jump in and and try it together mm. yeah um tracy you heard what uh, tomorrow was just saying so with the opportunity now that you are giving these kids you said you wanted to to blow it up to like a hundred percent so then how did you how did you go about doing that how did you yeah, so on that, it was it was really it was kind of three things. One was one was three things that are important to me were it had to be a long-term goal. It couldn't be something that just happened over a week. It had to be something that the kids worked towards. It was an intangible experience. They didn't get anything physical. They weren't enticed with any sort of you're going to get this as a result. You're going mm. the whole thing was you're going to get this experience. So that was number 1. Uh and the way that we did that was you know, we started in September and we said to the kids, you know, and this is like, to Tamara's point, it's like, we were telling the kids, if you stay in school and if you attend all the rehearsals and you know what your dance is and you have good behavior, academics, attendance, all this, you get to travel to, to Toronto for two weeks and we're going to put on this big show in downtown Toronto. Now you tell, and to this day, every kid that we tell that to who's new to our program doesn't believe you at all because <laughs> it just sounds like a big pipe dream, right it, it doesn't even sound real and it, right. and it doesn't like even to me I'd be like yeah okay I don't believe you so a lot of kids don't believe us the first year mm. but the kids that do are like and plus now like in the first year you know I was hoping too that it was going to happen but now that we have a track record people are like okay this is real they see kids dancing on stage in videotape and they're like oh my gosh there are kids like me on this big stage in Toronto and mm. we entice them when you get your hair and done, you get your makeup done, you get full costumes, you know, you get to meet all these kids from across the country. And it does sound like a dream. Um, and it is, and it becomes a, an amazing life experience for them. But that's the thing is it had to be wrapped around a long-term goal. It had to be wrapped around high expectations and it had to be wrapped around um, education. So that's kind of what the, the, the program has become and the organiz organization has become. And in the early days, it wasn't a high school credit. It was just an after-school program. But then we said, as I got working on it, I'm like, well, the kids are doing 110 hours, which is what you need to get a credit in high school. Mm. Why shouldn't they get a high school credit? So mm -hmm. then we turned it into a high school credit. And now we have multiple credits that it can be. So that sometimes we're running four or five credits in one school because kids have been through our program for three years. They need a different credit to obtain. So wow. sometimes they're doing dance. Sometimes they're doing phys ed music, guidance and learning. Like there's a whole list of credits that we adapt to the provincial curriculum in every province in the country or territory. So it's great. And congratulations. Now I, I want to ask you guys both this question. 
One, why do you think that this is resonating so well with these kids? Um, well, this is Tracy. I think, you know, the first thing is, is um, I think the differentiator with our program, number one, is you build up this trust with the kids. So that was the first thing in the first year was I always said, okay, guys, I just taught you all this choreography. I'm going to be back in two weeks and, or three weeks and we're going to add on, got to practice because we're moving on and we're going to build on this number. And then when they start to see that choreographer come back to their community, when they say, number one, you're building that trust and relationship with not only the kids, the parents and the community, right? So that's number one is they get to build upon that and the kids begin to trust because a lot of communities and a lot of our own people, they just don't trust outsiders coming in mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they probably don't usually see them again after mm -hmm. they've seen them once, yep. right? A lot of times that's just the way they view outsiders coming into the community. So and I there, think that's and, the first thing. Yes, um, and there is that there is that history of outsiders <laughs> coming That's <in>. right. <laughs> that we don't really, yeah, we all know about. So, right. and then the second thing is, I think they really start to trust you when the show actually happens and it's, it's so life-changing that that's why we've been in these communities for, you know, some of these communities, 12 years, six, seven years, because you do what you say you're going to do. And really it's, I don't think a lot of them enter the program. A lot of them aren't, they didn't aspire to be dancers. Dance is such an easy thing for any kid mm. to embark upon. It doesn't mm. matter if they dream to be a professional. It's not about that. It's just right. about a program that they can come in. Like Tamara said, just have this amazing feeling of being able to express themselves and if it, their first way to express themselves is not verbally like I am I'm very mm -hmm. much like that it's not my first way to communicate or express myself through the body mm. you get to a lot of kids that um, that wouldn't otherwise you know talk or speak up or even uh, associate with other people so mm. yeah you're just bringing things out in people that never they never thought would happen Okay. Before I get to uh, Tamara to answer this uh, question, and, and Tamara, I'm going to relate it especially to you. And from what I saw on Facebook, especially with kids who have siblings. So uh, I want to come back to you on that. But I just want to mention to everyone that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa and anywhere across the country on the Radio Player Canada app if you download that app. So Tamara, you have siblings and, and that uh, your creative family. Um, when you go to the Facebook page, you see uh, many of these kids talking about, you know, oh, uh, you know, I, I wasn't interested, but then I saw one, the kids, but two, my sister came in, you know, and was showing us the moves and stuff like that. How much do you think that that, that plays an important role in engaging, you know, family members? I think I think it's huge. I think I think what it speaks to more is how easily influenced we are by our surroundings. So mm. that means the good influences and the bad mm. influences, um, and and I think that that's not you know as as youth, it's just a more emphasized kind of picture of of the psychology of it all. But the same thing happens when we're older. I mean, it's the reason why people have to join these fitness apps <laughs> so that they can mm. do you know do them with other people. Do, mm -hmm. do, you know, or do you see all these dance classes that are online? It's like it's 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 the contagion factor. Mm -hmm. Um and uh especially when you, you see something that is making people feel good. Um, and I, w I remember this one interview. Um, I can't remember who it was, but 
he was saying how he, it wasn't just the, the dancing part. Like the, it, the, that's the thing, the dancing and moving and, um, and, and that uh, the communal um, sharing of an experience subconsciously leads to other things. So then you end up talking about all the things that you want to do when you grow up. And, and it was this, we, we were talking about how dreaming becomes contagious, you know, mm. aspiring things. So mm. yes, they were dancing together, but then what they also did in between breaks was chatting about the worlds that they come from and, and their families and the, and, the, and the individual dreams that they had. And so it's almost like they don't even, you, the bonus you get from putting a bunch of youth in a space to do a dance class are all these other things that are just um, that just naturally happen when um, it's a good, supportive, healthy environment? And I guess that's why I think the, a dance program is so powerful. I find dancing is just the most fully integrated experience. You know, if we speak about the teachings of the medicine wheel, you know, mm. the, the mental, physical, spiritual, emotional. Mentally, they're doing choreography. And if you've ever tried to, you know. Um, follow a, 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 dan a you know a mini dance routine it's very mentally challenging so mm. you're working their brains in that way physically obviously it's 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 the movement spiritually it's just in our blood and our bones i mean we come mm. from people who have been dancing for thousands and thousands of years and just what activates when you start moving your body in that way and then just the emotional rush of of the highs of of what it is to be with each other and then when you get to perform for people that you love and care about and want to make proud I mean, it's just, it's such a, uh, you know, there's many things that could probably provide all of that, but I just, I, I do think Tracy really um, landed on this, this one thing that gives mm. so much. Yeah, I, th I think you're correct. And, and you know, you, you used a term there that uh, is, is we're looking at in terms of the, the positive side of contagion right now, mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, although we're, we're in this uh, situation yes. with COVID-19. However, uh, what we're talking about, and you're right, I, I think it is something that is uh, contagious in that, that communal way. And, and, you know, when you go again, I'm going to refer back to the, the Facebook page again because of the, the little snippets of interviews that you see from not only the kids, um, but you see also from family members, you see parents talking about that as well and uh, mentioning um, uh, how they, you know, they got the kids involved. And you see the pride in the kids' faces and you can actually hear it in their voices when they're talking about this program and what it's given them. And it's so, it's really nice to see that that is happening. Um, now, uh, Tracy, was there a was there a moment? I mean, you saw this happening on a, on a small level, and you've been doing this for a number of years now, and you can see, you know, the perform when you see these kids perform, even in their gymnasiums, they're really they're really giving her, uh, okay. and they're really getting into it and enjoying this process. But like you said, you know, kids also talk about, well, I was getting my marks up, and uh, I think there is there's something in this program that you have to kind of keep that that academic side up if you want to stay in the program. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's the thing. I, when, when I went through that first year, the first year was the most challenging, obviously, mm. because it's just an idea, right? You, and you have to, it was all about proving the idea right. And, and I didn't even know if it was going to go right. It, I, I kind of thought it would, because I'm like, there's no way it shouldn't. In my mind, there's no reason why this would fail. Mm. Um, but, and I think once we got the first show done, uh and the crowd and it was the audience's reaction like oh, okay now this is what you were talking about this is what was going to happen mm. once people saw that first show 
created everything that was in my mind created on stage. People like, okay, I get what you were trying to do now. And yeah, that was really neat. Then we did it again the second year. And it was more about when you saw, see the first year we weren't, we were, it was really hard because we started with 35 kids Mm. in one community and we, and did a show with five kids. (laughs) So we weeded out like 95% of the kids, which, you know, there weren't, there were a lot of people that were not happy with me in that regard too, because I I said, well, we have you have to go to school. Like right. you have, yeah. we have to have standards for this program. So we, mm-hmm. I didn't have, I had some kids that were upset. I had some parents mm-hmm. that were upset. Um, but then once we did in the second year and we started again, you know, nailing that criteria down even more and what, how they could get the Toronto. Again, you still have people that disagree with you, but you have to stick to your guns and then mm. you go through the process again and it turned out well again. Um, mm. So it was just, it was almost like I'm a creature of repetition, right? Like, maybe being a dancer the more you repeat and practice the better it gets so that was kind of my philosophy of the show like just repeat you know turn it out and then get it better next year and keep doing it and it's worked um after 13 years you just keep Mm -hmm. doing that and people kind of see and there's people that don't agree with you but in your heart you know you're doing the right thing Mm -hmm. um even if it's and you know because and i think when people are saying yeah all the other effects of keeping kids in school but then you're they're bring those kids are bringing it home to their families. Like mm-hmm. parents will say to me, you know, my son won't let me eat or won't let me drink Red Bulls anymore. Cause you guys tell them it's not good. <laughs> like, and those are the good things that happen, right? Like we're not allowed to drink pop anymore in our house. Cause our kids, you know, spent two weeks with you in Toronto and you didn't. Work pop. So I'm like, well, that's not a bad thing. Right. So it's, there's all these other effects that happen in the family. A lot of family dynamics change. A lot of siblings don't talk to each other. Now they do. Mm. Or families don't talk to each other. Now they do. Um, it's become election issues in some mm. of the communities. Right. Um, Chiefs will run on it saying, I'll bring the OLI program back. Wow. <laughs> it's wow. become pretty powerful in some of these communities, <laughs> like in that regard. Um, mm. That's when you know you have something, right? When um, things like that start to happen. Uh, you mentioned sticking to your guns and, and starting out in the early days, and, and I think you can both relate to this. Um, that must have been one difficult to, you know, make those cuts uh, from those kids because you don't want to do that, obviously. You're just starting out, and, and, and you want to keep it going, and you want to keep that enthusiasm going. Uh, so that's the one thing from your side. But uh, from the other side of of uh, being someone, uh, and, and again, you both can relate to this, someone that... You mentioned uh, you, in your own mind you believe this was a good idea, uh, and and tomorrow as a, as as someone in the arts, uh, and someone having a dream, uh, it, it is very difficult uh, to to move that forward if uh, if you haven't got encouragement from other people. So you also have to have some, and I guess that's what the program is doing is helping to motivate these people and giving them that courage and giving them that uh, that that. Um, um, right to to want to belong and and, and follow uh, and pursue something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it, it's always a a, 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 a tricky a, like a, a very blurry area when you talk about arts programming, uh, community arts programming, especially when it's done by professional artists mm. who are active in the industry because you don't ever want to cross over, right? Like Tracy's not bringing into the community. This is what you have to do to be a professional dancer. That would be mm. a very different program. Sure. And, and, it, and it would not have the same results at all. Um, and, and so 
um, I, I feel very strong and I've had the same and, and yet she has to maintain, you know, some, some standards and some boundaries. And I've had even myself going into communities and whether it's workshops of media workshops or dance workshops or, um, uh, fitness workshops there, it, it's like finding that balance between, um, you know, uh, compassionately and, um, and, uh, you know, positively, uh, supporting and and teaching, and yet um, not uh, you know, and and creating a, a safe uh, space, but also um, I guess uh, being that voice of um, I don't know, uh, like that it's not just a free for all, mm. and and we and and that's also it, and and I. It, I say it's a tricky balance because, and that's why I'm having so much difficulty explaining it. But I don't know, Tracy, would, would, like, do you feel that same um, like, w- uh, difficult challenge in finding the balance between um, you know, the, the empowerment work and the, the guidance? Oh, you know absolutely. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and that's absolutely. And, and it's not, you don't get it 100% right. Yeah. And, mm. and it's a risk. Like some, I can give you a couple examples. One is, I can say to a kid, okay, like when we start the program, this is the formula of success. And this is the success formula. If you do this formula, you will make it to Toronto. And then when you mm. tell the kid, okay, you didn't meet the formula here. Yeah. Do you know why I'm removing you? Or we warn the kid. Yeah. Mm. And then we give them another warning. Do you know why right. we're removing you? Right. Like 99% of the kids will say, I understand. Yeah. Right. Um, because, but you have to communicate that to them in advance so that they fairly truly understand why they're getting removed from the program. And a lot of times I tell them, this is our formula and this is what we expect from you. Um, and they agree to it. Then when they break that formula, they get it. They understand why they don't make it. Yeah. But at the same time, then there's people that kids that we have to remove because they, they don't know the choreography well enough. And we, mm. as much as we evaluate, that's when it, the arts programming side of it can get tricky, right? Like, you know what? Jen, I just can't see you. You're not, I'm giving you feedback on your choreography and I'm just don't really think that you know it. Like, yeah. and it's, it's, it's that part. And then we say to them too, is that, you know, when they get to camp, they're also learning a whole nother closing number routine. Mm. And we have to think if the kids can handle being away from home right. for two weeks, can right. they handle six yeah. hours of day of dancing at camp? Um, and if we don't, then we will remove the kid, but that's, we have to be very careful. Um, because a kid has made it so close, you yeah. have to make sure that you're, and we, and we haven't got it hundred percent right. There's always right. probably a, maybe a couple of kids that you're like, well, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. But if we think that they're going to crash and burn, we won't bring them. Right. I, I, I want to jump in here, guys. We're getting close to the end of our time, but I want to, want to, we want to get on to the event uh, and see and talk about that a little bit. Um, but uh, the other thing I want to, um, uh, uh, mention is that that hopefully those kids that don't make it uh, one year can can reapply the next year and, and maybe you've had some of those situations where kids have come back one. Second thing though is uh, I was I was thinking that uh, as success grew this program, um, I, I'm I'm guessing perhaps uh, Mox and Telegraph played a, a a part in 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 spreading the word about this this program and and uh, getting it into other communities, with, uh, cousins and people talking about those kind of things. 
Absolutely. Uh, but listen, let's get on to the, the event now. Um, uh, May 6th, I believe, was the day when, when the performance was to take place. And you did it uh, f- on Facebook Live this year. So, uh, Tamara, you were the host. Uh, how, how did things go for both of you? Let's start with uh, uh, who wants to start? Tracy? Tamara? Who, who wants to? Tamara, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, yeah, it was a wild ride. Uh, I've never done a Facebook Live event. Um, and I certainly have never hosted anything without a live audience yeah. and as a natu- as, as a performer. Uh, that was probably the, the most challenging thing that there's no way you can prepare for that. So right. uh, I just had to, you know, I'm doing it from my bedroom. Yeah. I mean, you, we turn into a minute studio. You're just, you're, you're, you're trying to make things uh, that you're trying. So all I could do is turn it up as if this would translate on screen and, mm. uh, and hope that it worked. And I, I think it was a great success from people, from, from all the interactions that I had in that really weird virtual way. Um, and the comments that we were seeing coming in on Facebook, um, and th- and that there was one technical glitch, I would say we rocked it. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> great. Yeah, so okay, great. well, tell us a little bit about that then, and 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 what was the what what kind of feedback did you get back from the kids? That's it. let's get there there. But uh, uh, Tracy, um, you decided to take this online. Uh, tell us about uh, you know a little bit about that. Yeah, honestly, I wasn't I wasn't at the very. We may only made this decision like the. I'd say the second to third week of April, this was Mm. not something I, in my truly in my heart, I wanted to do. Mm. But as we, I'm like, Oh my gosh, how we we can't put dance online. Once we started to work through it every day. um, And I have a great team of people Mm. who are working, doing all the research and how we were going to do this. um, But I was just like, I don't, it's not going to feel this. Is it going to feel the same? No, it's not going to feel the same. And Mm. how are we going to do this? But it, it turned out, amazing it turned out i think it surpassed all of our expectations um you know you had people joining probably to see various people or interviews uh and then we like i said to tomorrow we captured a crowd we captured almost up to four thousand people uh mm. who viewed the show so more than the meridian hall had we were expecting meridian hall holds 3100 right. for our live event but you know we captured people that probably wouldn't have joined otherwise and yeah. i think that was kind of neat uh on our behalf so it doesn't definitely didn't replace having 200 kids on stage live in a theater, but it was the best that we could do. And I think it went so well. And, and you gave the kids the, you know, the, the, the closing, you know, of what they were hopefully expecting anyway. And you, you, you lived up to that part of the, the deal for for them. And it was nice that you did that. Uh, any other comments about so what, what kind of things you hear back from the, we only have like a couple of minutes left, um, uh, from the kids themselves that participated? What, what, did you hear anything back from them? Um, we did. We had a lot of kids that were just, you know, a lot of the kids still are still heartbroken by it. Um, Mm. and just reality is a lot of our kids couldn't view it because they don't have internet or they don't have Mm. devices where they live. Right. So some of our kids couldn't view it, but the kids that did view it and the communities that did were just so happy. Um, and you wouldn't know it, but through the Facebook live event with all the comment section, a lot of those comments were coming from kids and families in the communities who are watching it. So a lot of them were just proud that we, they were able to see some of the people associated with the program, um, see Tamara, see Buffy, and see some live music. We never did live music in our mm-hmm. actual show before. This was right. going to be the first year we're going to do live music. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, I think over, overall, a lot of our sponsors were happy and just right. the, the average viewer was very pleased. Great. Now, we, we're coming up to a minute left. So, uh, where can people go to see this now? It should be on, up on our Facebook page 
All right, great. Well, uh, thank you to both of you for uh, participating in Moment of Truth today. It's been great having you both on the show. We really thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks, right. tomorrow. And uh, congratulations, congratulations to both of you and also all the best of luck with your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And that is Tamara Pademski and Tracy Smith uh, as we're hearing them talk. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.